if you would, open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. We turn once again to God's Word, and uh, we look to it to guide us. We look to it to guide us in our life. It gives us laws. It gives us guidelines. Even in the gospel, there are commands. Even with Christ, there are commands about how to live. Unlike in the world today where people will tell you to do something, but there's no law to back it up. God's word has law to back up what I'm preaching today and and what you hear in faithful biblical exposition all over the world. Sometimes Christians will say, you ought to do such and such. And you always ought to ask, where is that in Scripture? Where is that in Scripture? Because the Scriptures guide us. They tell us. And Paul is going to tell us how to live as a Christian. Paul is an apostle of Christ. He's been sent by the Lord Jesus Christ to take the gospel to the Gentiles and to train them up. The Great Commission is not just evangelism. It starts with evangelism. And then it's baptism in the name of the Trinity. And then it's teach him to observe all that Christ commanded. And even though Paul goes on to another place to plant another church, he writes letters back to the churches he's planted. And he helps them grow. He helps them know what to do when it comes to living the Christian life. So today we look at Ephesians four seventeen through 24. I'll just read the text to you. You'll see that it's two paragraphs. Um, Well, you can't really see that, but it is two paragraphs, two sentences in Greek, uh, ending the first paragraph at the end of 19, starting a new thought at the end of 20. There are two sides of the same coin. There's negative, what you shouldn't do, and the positive, what you should do, starting in verse 17. So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of their ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him, And I've been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus. That in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. And that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. There's a way that Christians ought to live. And sometimes there's a way that they actually do live. And those don't always match up. Sometimes Christians live a double life. I found an old newspaper article from 1992 in the LA Times. And it was touting some psychological survey that they had done. Here's the headline. Leading a double life is more common than many suspect. And it goes on to say that leading a double life would seem to be the exclusive domain of professional spies, fictional secret agents, and undercover operatives with foreign accents. But seemingly ordinary men and women sometimes hide extraordinary secrets from those closest to them. Their families, friends, co-workers. Consider the well-respected chief executive who embezzles funds from his company. The man with two wives and two sets of children who know nothing of one another's existence. Psychologists say that thousands of men and women are living in two worlds, 
caught in a web of lies, risks, and shame that ultimately forced them into secret behavior that is far different from their everyday existence. Now that article is talking about adultery and how many people are, are living in two different worlds. But many Christians today are living a double life. They're not living a life that matches up to what they proclaim, what they profess, what they say that they are. On Sunday, they act as if they're one sort of person. Maybe around their co-workers or their boss, they act as if they're one sort of person around their spouse, their children. But in their own time and in their heart, they act a completely opposite way. They live a different way as much as they can. And this is not the way of the Christian life. It's not what the Bible tells us to do. It's not what Christ wants us to do, commands us to do. The Christian life is not double-minded. The Christian life is not showing up on Sunday checking boxes that you've done something great and showing everybody how godly you might be and then living the rest of the week as you please. And the Christian life, we're to be singularly focused on growing in Christ-likeness. If you weren't here this morning at Frank's class, that was his whole point for an hour was how do we grow in Christ-likeness? And he's teaching us through the spiritual disciplines. How do we grow in Christ-likeness? Well, today's topic in class was Bible reading. Bible reading, listening to the Bible. Scripture teaches us how to grow. Of all the things that it teaches us, it certainly teaches us how to grow in Christ-likeness. In fact, Paul says later in the pastoral epistles that Scripture is all we need to know how to grow. There are other things we need to do. Pray, for example. Be part of a church, for example. But where do we go to know about those things? Scripture. And so now he's going to tell us. And that's really the theme for the rest of the book of Ephesians. How do you live a godly life? How do you live a holy life? You've heard me say over and over that the first three chapters are about doctrine. The last three chapters are about how to apply that. How to live the Christian life. Well, he he started chapter 4 with unity in the church. And he wanted us to be unified around what we believe. Around how we use our gifts to unify and edify. And on how we ought not to be tossed around by everything that the world throws at us. Every wind of doctrine. Every false type of thinking and philosophy. Well, now he's returning to where he really started in in the first few verses of chapter 4. He's returning to walking as a Christian. Walking, living as a Christian. How should we live? Holiness is important and unity in the church is important. But Paul is not assuming just because we're unified that we're all going to be growing in holiness. They both have to happen. We have to work at staying unified and we have to work at growing in holiness, in Christ-likeness. That's his goal for the rest of the letter. Living a holy lifestyle before God. It's really the point of all that doctrine that he gave us in chapters 1 through 3. It wasn't just to fill our heads with knowledge. You're supposed to do something with that knowledge. This idea that you're the most knowledgeable theological guy in the world or gal in the world and that that's good enough is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches you got to do something with that. First, your thinking has to change and then your lifestyle has to change. So today's sermon is about how God wants us to continue to turn away from a worldly way of living and turn to Christ-likeness. A godly way of living. Turn away, turn to. Just like when you're first saved, 
You, you repent, you turn away from your sin, your idolatry, your worship of self, and you turn to Christ. You put off the old sins and you turn to Christ. Of course, God gives us that power. He does right when he saves us. And he also gives us the power to continue to do that in the Christian life. So there's two main points to this section here. I'm going to break it down and have some subpoints as well. But there's two main ideas. To put off something and then to put on something. So let's look at the first one. The best way to say number one is reject the pagan lifestyle. You've got to reject the pagan lifestyle. Paul's just picking back up really on what he started in chapter 4 verse 1. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, verse 3 all the way through 16 opens up this idea of unity. But he started by saying we ought to live in such a way. We ought to walk in such a way. And he implored us to do so that's worthy of the calling, that lives up to Christ's calling of us, God's election of us. We're to live a certain way. And the first thing he wants to really tell us about that is we've got to reject the old pagan lifestyle. Verse 17. So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord. Now every time Paul speaks and writes something down in Scripture, that's God's word. But when he really wants to make a point, he'll make it even stronger. And he'll say things like, I affirm together with the Lord. What I'm about to say you may not like so much, Paul's saying, but this is the Lord's will. This is the Lord's words. Christ said this kind of thing when he was upon the earth. Paul speaks very strongly here. He's not just saying, if you'd like to live a holy life, that'd be a good idea. Maybe you should live a holy life. He's saying, I'm saying it as the Lord's representative, and the Lord said it too. We're saying it both. We affirm it together. What's he going to say? That no believer should live like an unbeliever. A believer should not live like an unbeliever. There's a separation. And he's making a very strong statement here with this paragraph. So many Christians are leading what, what appears to be a double life. Why? Because they're returning to the world. If they're truly regenerate, they're trying to return to the old things, the old way. Now, sometimes Christians say they're believers and they're just not. So there is no difference. You wouldn't expect there a difference. Just because you have a, a shirt that says, I'm a believer, it doesn't make you one. Or a sticker on your car, or carry a Bible, or go to church. But sometimes true, regenerate Christians want to return to the things of the world, the things that they had before they were saved. And Paul's saying, we've got to totally break from that. We've got to break from that. He's affirming together with Christ that we've got to break away from the former sinful life. He says that in 17, that you no longer, no longer walk just as the Gentiles also walk. There was a time when you walked like that. There was a time as an unbeliever that you did these things he's about to list. But not anymore. Not anymore as a Christian. Whenever this word comes up to walk, peripateo, it, it means how you live, how you conduct yourself in everyday life. It doesn't mean you have to walk a certain way down the street as a Christian. It's a Hebrew kind of idea that you find in the Old Testament. It's how you go about your everyday life. In the house, out of the house, at work, at church, 
with people, by yourself? How do you live? And he says you're not to live as the Gentiles live. Your lifestyle has got to be different from that. Don't think and act like Gentiles. Now, the Ephesians are Gentiles ethnically. They can't change that. He's not saying change your ethnicity. A lot of people are getting upset about ethnicity these days. You can't change that. You can't change that. That's who God made you to be. You can't change that. He's saying don't act like they act. Because the Gentiles in this day were pagans. And they worshiped false gods. And the Jews worshiped the true God. Of course, they denied Christ in Paul's day. But at least they knew of the true God. At least they had the scriptures. What we have today is a land, a world of pagans, of Gentiles. And this applies directly to us. You really don't even have to make a big jump to get from this text to our world today. Don't act like pagans. Now you might think, well, Americans aren't really pagans, are they? Are Americans pagans? Don't most of them believe in God? And a pagan is somebody who doesn't believe in God? Well, technically, that's an atheist. A pagan is a Christian term that's been used to, to talk of someone who worships another God, not the God of the Scripture, not the Christian God. That's a pagan. And we come to think as pagans as somebody somewhere else, in another country, on an island somewhere, that is involved in polytheism, worshiping a statue. But most Americans don't worship the true God of Scripture. A pagan's any unbeliever. You know why a pagan is any unbeliever, even if they claim to worship God? An unbeliever worships who most of all? Themselves. Themselves. A pagan unbeliever worships themselves. Now, in ancient times, they bowed down to statues, and we've pretty much done away with that because we're too modern. We're too sophisticated for such things, although that's trying to make a comeback, of course, in the Western culture. But people worship themselves. That's why Jesus says, You've got to take up your cross and follow me. Being a Christian means dying to self and following him. You've got to let the old self die on the cross. And you've got to take it up and carry it every single day. Every day you're dying to self and every day you're following Christ. A person can claim they're a Christian because they were born in the U.S. of A. But their life shows whether they're living a, a pagan life or a Christian life. So Paul's saying, don't walk like that. Don't do that anymore. You once lived like that. You once were an unbelieving, self-idolatrous American. Now you're a Christian first. Yeah, you're still an American. And you still live in this world. And you still live with sin all around you. But Paul says, look, that's not who you are. Your identity is in Christ. So he says, don't live for main ways. There's four main characteristics of a Gentile. He's going to list them. And one of them, he's going to open up even more. It really demands more explanation. Four main characteristics of a Gentile, of a pagan lifestyle. Number one, it's futile. Reject this lifestyle. Why? Because it's futile. It's empty. The word futile means vain, vanity. You know, it comes up 39 times in one book of the Old Testament. When that book was translated into Greek, you can just trace this word from the Greek New Testament into that translation of the Old Testament. 39 times in Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Same exact word. The word means a state of being that's without use. It's without value. It's empty. It's futile. It's purposeless. It's absurd. It's worthless. It doesn't end in anything. There's no reason or purpose for it. 
This is the mind of the unbeliever. This is what your mind was once like before God saved you, if you're a Christian here today. Paul uses this word in 1 Corinthians 3.20. He's quoting Psalm 94 there, and he says again, The Lord knows the reasonings of the wise. They are useless. The wise people of this world, the people who think they're so wise, so wise that they won't believe in the one true God and they won't believe in His Son, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Their reasonings are useless. They're vain. They're empty. There's nothing to them. This purposelessness, this futility occurs in an unbelieving mind. He said it's the futility of the mind. Now we have to look up certain words in the Bible to get an understanding of them because sometimes we think the words in English today help us to understand the Greek words of that day. No, it's got to work forward. You look up the Greek word and that informs you of how to say it in English. Just to be clear on the mind, the mind is the faculty of intellectual perception. The word here, nuos, nuos. The mind is the faculty of intellectual perception, the place that we use our ability to understand and reason. Mainly Paul's talking about reasoning here. Their minds are, are full of futility. They can't reason properly to think God's ways after him. They can't believe and follow spiritual teachings. Because it's futile to them. Their thinking doesn't work right. God gave humans a mind to think his thoughts after him. To follow him. To obey him. To love him. To obey and love and serve and glorify and praise. But the unbelieving mind can't do that. The purpose of the unbelieving mind is only to themselves, which is not really a purpose at all. So it's purposeless. Purposeless. The unregenerate mind is unable to do the things that we ought to do as creatures of God. So it ends in nothing. Vanity. What's the point of an unbeliever's life? You live a whole life, you do all these great things in Ecclesiastes, it says, and you just die like everybody else. You just, you just go to hell if you're an unbeliever and spend eternity in suffering. It's vain. It makes no sense. If you're a believer in Christ and you look back, you say, that makes no sense. Why don't they just believe in Christ? Because of the futility of their mind. They've also been darkened, number two. It's not only futile, but he says being darkened in their understanding. He's really given us the reason, the cause for their futility. Their purposeless reasoning is because of the darkening in their understanding. They don't understand the things of God. They can't reason properly because their mind has been darkened. The perception is cloudy. There's clouds overhead and they can't see the sun. They can't see the sky. They can't see the light. They have a ceiling on what they can understand about God. There's a limit. They can only understand so many things about God. There was a limit to what you could do. As a believer, we're going to have eternity to learn about God. Eternity. We have this whole book in this life. We'll never master this. And then in eternity, you continue to learn about God. But the unbeliever, the pagan, the Gentile mind is darkened. There's a limit. It's cloudy. Later, he'll say in Ephesians 6.12 that the powers of this dark world are enticing us and tempting us, even as believers. But as an unbeliever, the powers of the dark world are, are tainting the mind of unbelievers. Satanic powers, demonic powers. They're helping with this cloudiness. 
Unbelievers do it to themselves, but of course the demonic realm adds to that. So when it comes to their understanding, what this means is they intentionally prefer darkness to light. Instead of their minds leading them to God, it leads into the dark shadows of sinful living. Why is their mind futile? Because it's darkened and they choose in their understanding to go to the dark places in life, not the light. They don't run to the light. They go to the darkness. That's what Jesus said. The light came into the world. They didn't want him. They didn't care for him. They killed him. Why? Because darkness is in their minds and in their hearts. An unbeliever can think they're wise in many things. But without the Holy Spirit enlightening their mind, bringing light to the darkness, they're going to remain in darkness. Their understanding is not clear. They cannot think the things that a believer can think about God. You can sit there all day and study the scriptures with an unbeliever. But unless you're pointing to the gospel, it's going to be cloudy. You've got to point them to Christ, faith in Christ. You can try, you can try to reason, but their, their reasoning is affected. It's darkened, it's cloudy. You can make your case, and we should. We should do apologetics sometimes. We should defend what the scriptures say. When the world says one thing about marriage, we should defend the truth from scripture. But at the end of the day, they don't have to listen. They don't want to listen. They're darkened. Paul was a PhD in the Bible before he got saved. Paul knew his Bible before he got saved. He was a PhD in the Bible and Jewish studies, Judaism. He knew all the laws. And he's still saying the unbelieving mind is darkened. Where, where does that get him to know the Bible so well? To know Judaism so well? Where did that get him? I just made him want to sin even more, he says. Read Romans 7. Read his testimony in Galatians. It just brings out the sin even more. He wanted to put Christians to death. The better he knew the law, he thought, the more he should put Christians to death. The unbelieving mind is darkened. Why? Well, because they're, number three, alienated. Alienated is the third thing that he lists here. We ought to reject the Gentile lifestyle because of these things, because it's alienated from the life of God. Your, your Bible says excluded, but I think the word alienated is better. I made the case for that back in chapter 2 when we covered verse 12. Paul says, Remember that you are at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. The word excluded there is our same word that we have here. Alienated is better. Excluded makes it sound like you had it once, you were in the group, and you got kicked out. We never had it. As Gentiles, we never had the promises of Israel, and we never had the life of God. We're far from it. We're aliens. We're foreigners trying to get into the country illegally if we think we can just force our way into Christianity. And God won't have it. Many countries let illegal aliens come in. Happily, many countries do. But not with God. You don't get past the border. There's not just a wall there. There's an impossibility. There's a chasm. You're never going to cross and get the life of God without Christ. And Paul says they're alienated from God. They're, they're spiritually separated. They don't have the life of God, the life that comes from God. God gives supernatural life, eternal life. To those who believe in Christ, God gives them life. It's in the future that we'll get it, but we live a certain way now because of that life. We get to enjoy many benefits of eternal life already, right now. Fellowship, preaching, prayer, many things we could list that are benefits we already get to enjoy. 
But without Christ, these unbelievers are lost in sin forever. Their situation is hopeless unless they come to Christ. Why would an unbeliever remain alienated from God? It makes no sense. But remember, their their mind is darkened. Their thinking is futile. And they're separated from God. They'll be lost forever without Christ. But why is that? He digs deeper. Paul just keeps digging. He goes all the way down to the root. He starts with this idea of futility. Then he goes to darkened. Then he goes to alienated. And he takes a little break on alienated and he explains why they're alienated from God. Why is that? Well, we know that God can't be around sinners, that God can't be around sin. We know that. But just from man's standpoint, what is it that separates them from God? He says, because of the ignorance that is in them. They lack information about God. That's true. They do. They don't understand who God really is. They can't understand who God really is, but they also don't want to understand. 1 Corinthians 2.14. They don't accept the things of God. And then he goes on to say in 1 Corinthians, they can't. So it's both God's sovereignty, not allowing it, but also their desires. We'll see that come up again a little bit later. They do not know God. They do not know His ways. They're ignorant. Ignorant means without knowledge. But sometimes we think that that's just... An inborn ignorance. Of course they don't know about God. Somebody's got to tell them. That's not what Paul's talking about here. He's saying they willfully choose not to know about God. They're separated from God. They're excluded. They're they're alienated is the better word. Because they don't know about God. They didn't want to know about God. They've chosen not to know anything. Have you ever been around an unbeliever and you want to just preach the gospel? You want to give them scripture? And they'll say, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that. Quit throwing the Bible at me. Maybe they're on their deathbed. Maybe they've got a terminal illness. They just shake their head, put their hands up. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear it. Why? They want to remain ignorant about God. That's what makes them aliens to God. 1 Peter 1.14 speaks of this, same word. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust, which were yours in your ignorance. They chose former lusts. We chose certain lusts as an unbeliever. And we love the fact that we didn't have to know and feel any kind of judgment from God. It was there. God's condemnation rests upon every unbeliever, but we'd rather not hear about it. We'd rather not know it. Now, if we get really upset over our sin, we start to realize as an unbeliever often that it's there. God's judgment is coming, but we put it off. You know, it's interesting, isn't it? Today, People want to know everything that's going on in the world, don't they? They're not ignorant about what's going on in the world. Unbelievers have great capacity. They're made in the image of God. They have a capacity to think, research. You can search things online, find them at the tip of your fingers. You can know exactly what's going on. You can know why your phones all went off last night with an emergency alert. You can know why statues are being torn down, what COVID-19 is doing in this city as of this morning great ability to learn about all things. The Saharan dust, that's causing allergies. To the minute, somebody can tell you how much of that dust is in the air and what that's going to do tonight with your allergies. But it's interesting, isn't it, that people find themselves being completely ignorant of God and His ways. They can research and study all those things. Get a PhD in those disciplines. But when it comes to the world, they don't want anything to do with God. They don't want to know Him. 
And he goes even further here. He's continuing to go down this step-by-step staircase here because of their hardness of heart. Why are they ignorant of God? Were they just born that way? That's not the point he's making here. He's saying they're ignorant. They choose to be because of their hardness of heart. Their stubborn unwillingness to learn. They have a closed mind. It's closed. They don't want to hear it. They resist the truth of God. You know, God's put truth in every person. He's put truth in their hearts to know right from wrong. He's given them the ability to look at God's creation, to look at the stars, to look at the sun, the moon, the clouds, the plants, the animal life. Why? So that we would know He exists, Romans 1. So that we would worship Him, that we would give thanks, that we would praise Him. But mankind has hardened their hearts. They don't even want to hear about that. Don't even tell me God created the world. We've got new theories and philosophies for that. We will go to great extent to work around that truth. Hardness of heart. A person with a hardened heart lives for themselves and they fight against God. We could go back up this chain now that he's already given us in these first two verses. And we can see how one leads to the next. Number one, an unbeliever hardens their heart against God. If we're just going back up the two verses here. That leads to ignorance about God and His ways. That leads to an alienation from eternal life with God. That then leads to a darkened understanding. And then that eventually ends up with a futile mind. An empty mind. An empty ability to get anywhere with their thinking. But Paul's not done. There's more he's got to say. Number four. The fourth major reason. They're given over. They're given over. And they, verse 19, and they. He's putting they right up front. They're responsible. There's a type of giving over that God does. We'll look at that in a minute in Romans 1. This is themselves giving themselves over. They, having become callous. Callous means dead to feeling. It means morally insensitive. They're not bothered at all by the implications of what's going to happen with their sin. They're callous. It's another way of saying they're hardened. Really, I think this phrase callous is just summarizing everything he's already said about them in the previous two verses. They're not at all bothered by what's going to happen because of their sin. Literally, the word means they have no capacity to feel shame or embarrassment. And it's in the perfect tense here, so it's something that's happened and been happening for a long time. It continues to affect the unbeliever right up to the present moment. They're callous. Don't care. They have given themselves over. They've given themselves over. So in 17 and 18, those first two verses, we were looking at the mind. We were looking at the heart. Now Paul's going to describe in this last one how they're going to act upon those heart desires. They're going to live them out. You remember when you were an unbeliever. It started in the heart. And then it came out in your actions. It came out in your lifestyle. Jesus says it like this in Mark 7, verse 21. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Where does the act of sin start? In the heart. We might say here, 
heart, mind. It starts inside. You've got to do battle there before they get out. But Gentiles, unbelievers, don't care. They don't want to do battle with their heart. Who wants to do battle with their heart? Battle with their desires. They just say, this is who God made me to be. And so they give themselves over, it says. To what? To sensuality. Sensuality. Behavior completely lacking in moral restraint. That's what the word means. Completely lacking in moral restraint. Usually the idea is the implication of sexual licentiousness. Licentious behavior. One way to translate it is extreme immorality. In fact, this word comes up in the Mark passage I just read in Mark 7. Jesus listed it as one of the desires of the heart. Sensuality. Peter mentions it as part of the believer's past life as well. 1 Peter 4, 3, For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles. You've already had enough time for all those sins. Having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. You've had plenty of that, Peter says. Now you're different. Now you're in Christ. The time has passed for those things. Same thing Paul's saying here. What's the purpose of giving themselves over to sensuality? For the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Paul just loves to stack up these prepositional phrases. And he continues to do so to teach us where these things come from. It's too easy for us just to say, I got it, got it, Paul. No, Paul's going to say, here's where they come from. Here's where they're going with it. Here's the purpose of it. What's the purpose of an unbeliever wanting to live in sensuality so they can practice every kind of impurity with greediness? And he doesn't just list one or a few sins. Sometimes Paul will give a list of sins and say, the people who practice these things won't inherit the kingdom. Here he just says every kind of impurity. Everything. Everything. The word here for impurity is a state of moral impurity, especially in relationship to sexual sin. Sometimes it's used in ancient Greek just for filthiness. It's one of the deeds of the flesh in Galatians 5. Something that must be repented of in 2 Corinthians. Every kind, he says. Everything. Adultery. Pornography. Everything. All the things that you can act upon, all the desires that you can live out in your life. That is why they give themselves over to it. Whatever their senses want, that's what they do. When you are an unbeliever, that's how you live. No matter how clean you thought you were, no matter how moral, no matter if you grew up in the South, in a small town where everybody went to church, the Bible says as an unbeliever, that was you. Now some of us had it more restrained than others. Some of us maybe were saved at a younger age, so we didn't have time to do so many of these things. But that's what the Bible says that you were. Paul says all this is done with greediness. Greediness. Not just a a little here and there, but it's a desire to want more and more and more. That's what greediness, covetousness is the word here. Unbelievers have a strong desire to acquire more and more of it. You've heard of greediness with regards to money. Wanting more and more. Christians can fall into that sin. Here it's every kind of impurity with greediness. Just give me more and more and more, the unbeliever says. 
That's why Colossians 3.5 says that greediness is idolatry. It all ends up in self. I want more. I want to feel good. I want to drink until I'm drunk. I want to live in a moral lifestyle. That's what the unbeliever says. Well, before we go to the more positive point, Romans 1, let's go over to Romans 1 and see how Paul says it there. In Romans 1, he talks more big picture society, but it still applies to the individual as well. We see a very similar list here. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. There's a suppression. They know the truth about God and they suppress it in their mind, in their heart. And God's wrath is against them already before they go into eternal punishment. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. He's already given them enough information, enough light to see that there is a God, that there is a Creator. Paul explains it in verse 20, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. The unbelieving pagan on an island in a cave by himself. What about that guy? Well, Paul addresses it right here. There's enough information in his heart and mind to clearly see God's invisible attributes, eternal power, divine nature, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. There's no excuse. No one gets into heaven saying, I didn't know anything about God. God says there's no excuse. He put enough there. They at least knew that there was a God. And Paul's going to go on to say that everyone should praise Him and thank Him. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile. There's that word again, futile. And their speculations and their reasonings and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. How did idolatry come about? They turned away from God, created their own idols to worship. Therefore, God gave them over and the lust of their hearts to impurity. I thought they gave themselves over. That's what Paul says in Ephesians. Here he says God gave them over as a punishment. It's both. They wanted to do it, and God let them do it. As part of their judgment already, He's letting them continue in their sin. It's, it's not a good thing that people get to continue in their sin from their standpoint. That's not good. They think it is. They think it is, but it's actually a judgment from God. He gave them over to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity. We've seen that word in Ephesians. So that their bodies would be dishonored among them, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They had information. They knew something about God that was true, but they didn't want to hear it. They exchanged it for a lie. They'd rather believe a lie. They worshiped and served the creature. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. He let them continue in their sin, in their passions. Women exchanged their natural function for what is unnatural. In the same way, also men abandoned the natural function of the woman, burned in their desire toward one another. He's talking about homosexuality here. And just as they did not see fit, verse 28, they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. God gave them over to a depraved mind. This chain continues. God gives them over. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. 
I don't even have to continue. It's just a long list of sins. Disobedient to parents. Inventors of evil. That's who we're not to live like. Why put all that information in there? He's talking to Christians. The Roman Christians. The Ephesian Christians. Because sometimes Christians want to go back to that. Sometimes Christians want to go back to that sin. They want to live in that sin for a bit. And Paul says, don't do it. Just flat out, don't do it. It's incompatible with the Christian life. Instead, major point number two, keep a godly lifestyle. Instead of doing that, keep a godly lifestyle. One is a rejection. You've got to reject it in your mind so that you don't do it. But that's not enough. You've got to actually be working on something else. You can't just sit and think about the sin that you don't need to do. You need to keep a godly lifestyle. Like you would keep your house, keep your garden, work at it, keep it. Like you would keep the commands of God. Keep a godly lifestyle. That's the rest of the passage, 20 through 24. You've got to keep on living the Christian life. You were given a gift. Salvation is a gift. God gave it to you. He gave you the Holy Spirit. He gave you eternal life. He gave you the scripture. He gave you prayer. He gave you all the tools that you need. Paul's already talked about that in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Just keep on doing it. You have to make a choice as a Christian to go back. You have to make a choice. You don't start out that way as a Christian. You've got to choose to go back. Keep a godly lifestyle. He's going to give us four steps to keeping it. I like steps. We should all like steps. Four steps to a successful life as a Christian. Here it is. Number one, remember. Remember. You got to remember who Christ is. You got to remember who we are in Christ and what he taught us. It's all sort of assumed in the next couple of verses. Who Christ is, who we are in Christ, and what he taught us. Verse 20. But, big contrast here. Big contrast. Don't live like the pagans, but instead, you did not learn Christ in this way. You didn't learn Christ through living a sinful life as an unbeliever. You didn't get to Christ through sinning all that you wanted. Now, maybe that led you to the point of conviction because you heard the gospel. But you didn't get to Christ by doing more and more sin. By living like a Christian. You lived as an unbeliever. And the word learn here is to gain knowledge or skill. You did not gain the knowledge of Christ and skill in Christ. Your translation might say learn about Christ. That might have the word about, but that's not in the original. About is inserted there because some people think this is learning about who Christ is. But it's not there. It's just learn Christ. The NASB has it. You did not learn Christ this way. To learn Christ means to gain the skill, not only to be saved, of course, you've got to have knowledge about that, but the skill to live a Christian life. Yes, you believed in Him for salvation, but you also learned a lot about how to live. Take up your cross and follow me. You know, when you read the Gospels, we went through Luke. He's preaching the Gospel. He's teaching His disciples. He's preaching the Gospel to unbelievers. He's teaching His disciples. He's discipling his disciples. He's teaching them how to live. What's Paul doing in Ephesians? Teaching us how to live. What to believe, how to live it out. Learning Christ here is being taught 
to live in Christ-likeness. It's not just knowing about Him. A lot of people know about Christ and the modern church. They know everything that He said. People can quote the Bible and they're still unbelievers. This is actually learning Christ. Who He is, who we are in Christ, and how to live accordingly. We'd not learn how to live in Christ the way the Gentiles live. If, 21, if indeed you have heard of Him. you got to remember not only what you learned as far as living in Christ, but also what you heard from Him and have been taught in Him. And Paul makes this conditional, if. Now, it's assuming, this type of construction in Greek is assuming that his listeners are believers. But he's throwing out a rhetorical question. If indeed you are a Christian, and I'm assuming you are, but if you are, then you've heard these things, you've learned these things, you've been taught these things. Paul was there for three years. He taught them. He knew. He knew what they learned. When Paul writes scripture, he's saying it's Christ who is teaching them, who is teaching us. Did we hear Christ? Did we hear his voice? Did the Ephesians that he's writing to hear Jesus Christ? No. How did they hear him then? If you've heard him, they heard him through the apostles. What the apostles taught are exactly what Christ wanted them to teach. They're Christ's teaching. They're messengers of Christ. They're apostles of Christ. They take the message from Christ and deliver it to the people. They write it down in scripture. Where do we hear Christ today? Right here. Well, isn't that Paul? I don't have to listen to Paul, do I? Well, Paul's a disciple and an apostle of Jesus Christ, appointed by Christ, being sent out. And these words are inspired by God from him to be given to the church. So he's saying, look, if you're a believer, if you've been saved, if you learned Christ, if you've heard Christ in the word, and if you've been taught, which Paul knows that they have, there's no excuse to live like that. There's no excuse. You've actually been taught. He's going to tell us here in a minute. You've been taught how to live as opposed to that. Before he gets to that, though, still remember, just as truth is in Jesus. That's the standard. What's the standard of truth? Jesus. Now, he's already mentioned Christ. Now he gives a human name, Jesus. Truth is the content of what we learn. What did we learn? When we first got saved, we learned Christ. Where? From the truth of God's word. From the truth of somebody else sharing God's word. From a preacher proclaiming God's word. We learn truth. Sanctify them truth. Your word is truth. What do we need to remember? Who Christ is. Who we are in Christ. And what he's taught us in the Bible. That's why reading the Bible is so important. How do you know this truth? You've got to read it. You've got to understand it. Number two. Step two. Once you remember those things. Once you've done that. You've got to put off. Remember how Christ taught us to live, and then you should put off. Verse 22, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self. This is a clothing word. That means to lay aside your clothes, to take them off. Figuratively, it's to rid yourself of them, to get rid of them, to be done with those sins. Like an old dirty garment, to throw it away and never put it back on. Go over to Romans chapter 6. And Paul speaks of this kind of thing whenever he's talking about baptism. And I'll often uh, cite this verse when I'm baptizing someone. He's describing what baptism symbolizes. And Romans 6, starting in verse 2, the question that's been asked in verse 1 is, 
are we to continue in sin so that grace can increase? I mean, if God's saved us and he's so gracious, maybe we can just keep sinning. That way God can be even more gracious. That'll make God look good. May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? We're dead. Or do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ, baptized in the name of Christ Jesus, have been baptized into his death? The symbolism is that we died with him. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. That old guy's dead. Those sins, they're dead. We have to go dig them back up when we want to sin. We have to go dig them back out of the ground to find them. We choose to go back after them, but they're actually dead. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. If we've died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. He goes on to say in verse 12, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Don't keep lusting. And he goes on in 13 to say, Don't keep presenting the members of your body as sin instruments of unrighteousness. Put those things off. They've already been put aside. You profess that at your baptism. You said, I'm dead to those things. I'm alive in Christ. I want to be baptized. I want to show everybody. I want to tell people. That happened right at the moment you were saved. Those things were dead. But you keep wanting to put those dirty clothes back on. They're nasty. They, they're stinky. They're rotten. And you keep wanting to put them back on when you sin. We go dig those things out of the trash dump with all the rotting stuff on it and we want to put those clothes on and, and sort of remember what it was like as an unbeliever. You remember how good that felt. We think we're something special to put these rotten clothes on. Paul says, put them aside. Take them off. Lay them aside and don't put them back on. Now we will. We will. We'll, we'll go after them. And So this is a daily idea. All of these are daily. Remember who Christ is. Remember the truth that taught in his word. Put off these sins. Put off these thoughts. Put off these actions. Take them off. Well, you can't just stop there. This old person is being corrupted, he says, in accordance with the lusts of deceit. Corrupted, he says. Corrupted. They're nasty. And there's lust there and there's deceitful lust that trick us into putting those clothes back on. But taking off is not enough. Jesus said if you, if you were able to, to kick all the demons out of a demon-possessed man and put your house in order, what's going to happen? The demon's just going to go get more demons and come in. Something has to replace the empty house, the body. The Holy Spirit is the idea that he's teaching there. Well, Paul's saying you put them off now. Number three, renew. You've got to renew. You've got to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Not the Holy Spirit here. The Spirit is doing the renewing, but the Spirit mentioned here is the Spirit of your mind. That's who you are. Your inner person, your inner being. That's important for us. 
Your mind has to be renewed. It's the place where you are being renewed ongoing. The present tense, it's ongoing. Our thinking has to change. Sometimes people want to skip this step and go to the next one that we're going to talk about. I'm going to put off that sin. You won't see me do that again. And I'm just going to focus on something else. But there's not been a mind change. There's not been a heart change. And Paul says, don't skip this step. Let your mind be renewed. Don't be lazy in your thinking. You've got to start with a change of mind. Repentance starts with a change of mind. You can't just put off the old and start making everybody think that you're a new person. I've changed. Let your mind be renewed. Let your mind be renewed, Romans 12, 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's passive. The Spirit's renewing it, but you've got to let it happen. Stop sinning, read your Bible, pray, do the things you need to do every day to have your mind renewed. And then that will affect your lifestyle. You know why it's hard sometimes to to make a change in your life towards godliness? Because your mind hasn't actually changed on that thing. You know it's wrong because somebody told you and you're just not doing it because of that. You haven't changed your thinking on it. You haven't studied it yourself, been taught and actually accepted that truth. Lastly, last step. Last step to keeping a godly lifestyle is put on. So you put off the clothes. You've had a change of mind. Now you're going to put on something new, the new self. Put on the new self. The idea is to put on any kind of of thing. That's what the word means here. Usually with clothes, but figuratively here, taking on new characteristics, new virtues, new intentions, new ideas, new mindset. Paul's not saying we can cause ourselves to be born again. He's not saying, when you're an unbeliever, just put away the old guy, welcome the new guy, you're saved. No, the ongoing Christian life is what he's getting at here. We can't bring ourselves into birth in the Christian life, but once we're born, we can take off the old clothes and put on the new clothes. What God's done from the beginning, we can continue that process through sanctification. God is working through us. He's given us the power. He's given us the tools. He's working. We can resist it. Paul's going to get into that more in chapter 5 of Ephesians. Or we can accept it. And what does accept it mean? That we're going along with what God wants. We're doing what He says. We've got to pursue Christ's likeness. That's what it means to put on the new self. Other passages of Scripture, he says, put on Christ. What is the new self? It's a new self made in the image of Christ. We've got to put on Christ. When a prisoner gets out of prison, he doesn't keep his prison clothes. Because if he does, you're going to think he's a prisoner. You're going to call the police. This guy escaped from prison. When we become a Christian, we don't keep those old, raggedy, nasty, outer actions of sin and inner actions in the heart, inner thoughts of the heart. We put them off and we keep putting them off. And we put on something better. We put on Christ. Do what you've been taught, Paul says. Do it. And put on that new self, which is in the likeness of God. It's the likeness of God. We're all created in the image of God, but that image becomes marred. It becomes corrupt after the fall. So we're all born with this corrupt nature. And we want to sin and we want to love our sin. And then we're saved. So it's been renewed. It's not perfect yet. We'll get there when we go to heaven. But it's been renewed. And Paul says, continue to be renewed. Continue to put on Christ. And that new self, it's not you. It's the likeness of God. And it's been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. 
Righteousness has to do with how you live towards others. Holiness, how you live towards God. There's been a radical change in you if you're saved. And you've got to put those sins away. And every day you've got to do battle with them. And every day you've got to put them off. Oh, there they are. I want to grab them. No, I'm going to put those off. I'm putting on Christ. I'm letting my mind be renewed. I'm putting on Christ. Holiness. Righteousness. I'm coming to church. I'm worshiping with the saints. I'm studying the word. I'm praying. I might be fasting. I might be going to Bible studies. All the different home groups, fellowship. I want to live a Christian life. Not a double-minded life. Don't you? Don't you want to live for Christ? Live the way the Bible calls us to live? None of this come to church on Sunday but then sin all week. None of that. That's not the Christian life. We've got to live for Christ. Let's put off the old. Let's put on the new. God, help us to do this thing that we need. Sometimes we feel like we don't have the power. Sometimes we think sin reigns in us again. It rules over us, but it doesn't. If we're in Christ here today, it, it doesn't. It has no power over us unless we give it power. We're no longer slaves. We've been set free. God, you know you've set us free. Remind us every day of what you've done for us. Remind us of the gospel. God, please remind us of the implications of the gospel, what it means for us, who we are in Christ. And help us to put these sins away. Help us to have a complete change of mind and continue to put on Christ. He's our Lord. He's our Savior. We love him. We want to be like him. Give us that desire. It's a good and godly desire. We ask that you would give it to us, not for our sakes, but for your glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.